Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Wade, one of the pastors here. We're going to look at John chapter 19, verses... John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. This is our text for today. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge of full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirits. This is the word of God. So we've been going through the gospel of John uh, for actually a couple of years now. And we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus right now. Last week, Pastor Michael, he preached through the passage that details the beginning of the process of crucifixion. And today we're going to look at the end of it, up until the point of Jesus' death. Our passage today is short, only three, three verses, but it contains the final two sayings of Jesus. If you've ever uh, noticed around Easter time, um, we, sometimes we hear this phrase, uh, the seven last words of Christ. And in these verses are the final two words of Christ. And in our time together, I want to point out what the significance of these two uh, words or sayings are. I thirst and it is finished. And I want to particularly focus on the thirst of Jesus today. What does it mean for Jesus to thirst? And what does it mean for us today? So to do that, I have three points, which are in your bulletin. Number one, the meaning of thirst. Number two, the curse of thirst. And number three, the quenching of thirst. Our first point, the meaning of thirst. Paul Brand was a a surgeon who practiced in India for many years, beginning in the 1940s. He was a believer and he wrote several books about his experience as a surgeon, as a doctor. And one of his in one of his books, he shares about his experience working with patients with ulcerated stomachs. And because the stomachs weren't working properly, the doctors and nurses, they had to make uh, new pathways for the food because it couldn't go straight into the stomach. It had to kind of bypass what was normally there. And after the operations, the patients, they weren't allowed to eat or drink because the stomach and the intestines needed time to rest in order to heal. Everything had to be given intravenously. And this, this meant that the hospital staff, they constantly had to monitor everything that the patient was intaking, all all the fluids. If there was too little fluid, the patients would, of course, be dehydrated. If there was too much fluid, that would mean that the bloodstream could overflow into the lungs and the patient would slowly drown. So the nurses, they had to keep meticulous records of everything that went in and out of the body. Every drop of water that went in, every drop of urine that came out, They had to take into account how much the patient might be sweating during this time. And even the the tiniest sips of water, even just uh, drops of water placed on their lips to to moisten it because they were dry and cracked. They had to take that into account as well. So this doctor, Dr. Brand, he would go make the rounds regularly. He would listen to the sound of the breathing of these patients. And if he heard the sound of bubbles, it meant that there was too much fluid and he had to talk to all the nurses and he had, to, he had to tell them, we need to recalculate everything. We need to make sure that the patient is getting exactly what he needs, not one drop more, not one drop less. And this would be done over and over until they were confident that the, that the stomach was healed enough to accept food. And when they felt this confidence, they would take out the IV needle, they would remove the bottle of fluids and they would tell the patient, 
you can drink again. You can drink again. And at that point, everyone, the patients, the doctors, the nurses, everyone would breathe a sigh of relief because now it was the patient that was in charge. And it was one thing that the patients possessed that allowed them to be in charge. It was their thirst. Their thirst was able to do far better what the doctors and nurses were trying to do with all their instruments and all their calculations and measurements. The medical professionals, they, they needed to know how much food went into the, how much food to give, but there was something that they didn't have at their disposal. They didn't have the patient's thirst. The thirst of the patient let them know, let the patients know that their body needed something and it was time to do something about it. So this is the function of thirst. It's a God-given mechanism and function. The function of thirst is a signal to us that we need fluid, that we need water. You might remember in, uh, in the mid-90s and even into the early 2000s, uh, the, the makers of Sprite, Coca-Cola, they, they had this really successful ad campaign based around this phrase, Obey your thirst. Obey your thirst. As all good marketers know, you don't sell a product by selling the product. You sell a product by building a story and a message behind it. And the, the implication of this phrase, obey your thirst, was that you're always going to feel a thirst. Not just for a drink, not just for soda, but for a lifestyle. The message was that you should let your thirst guide you. But Sprite took it one step further. Not only should you, not, should you let your thirst be your guide, but thirst is a master worthy of your obedience. Your thoughts and your actions should be dis- defined by this primal desire, this thirst. And the thirst that we're talking about today is about that type of thirst. The desire for something that our souls cry out for. These things that define our thoughts and our actions. So here Jesus says, I thirst. And while it's true that Jesus is speaking of a literal thirst on the cross, he's referring to something far more significant. The thirst he experienced on the cross has profound implications for the thirst that we experience on a soul level. Our deepest desires, our strongest cravings are a thirst. And we can look at this thirst as either a master to be obeyed, a la Sprite, or as a diagnostic that tells us that something is wrong. And that there's something that we should be doing about that thirst. So this is the meaning of thirst for us. We all have some type of thirst. We're deprived of something. And so is Jesus. In this passage, we're told that Jesus, this this word of Jesus' thirst was said in order to fulfill the scripture. And this is in reference to Psalm 69 in the Old Testament, which we refer to as a messianic psalm, a psalm that that speaks of the life and here, the death of Jesus, the Messiah. 
And in it are these words from the Psalm, Psalm 69. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The thirst of Jesus was written into his story. From centuries past, this was a prophecy of the Messiah. And here Jesus says to fulfill it, I thirst. As we move on to our second point, I want us to see I want us to see why it is that Jesus thirsted. So the curse of thirst. The curse of thirst. So as I was communicating just a moment ago, thirst is a blessing. Thirst is a function given to us. It's a blessing when it leads us to the water that can slake that thirst. But thirst is also a curse. Curse it's thirst is a curse when we can't find something to quench it. The story of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir help us understand what a deep thirst looks like. You may have heard the the name uh, Jean-Paul Sartre if you have studied history or philosophy. Sartre was one of the key proponents of existentialism, which is a philosophy that teaches that our lives don't have any objective meaning. It says, there's no value to our lives except for what we create for ourselves. We're not bound or defined by any standard outside of ourselves. Existentialism. And the appeal of this type of thinking is that you're free to do whatever you want. The only constraints are what you place upon yourself. And this type of thinking pervades our modern thoughts. You can be whatever you want to be. You are whatever you identify yourself as. You are worthy. You are enough. The movies and the books that our children read teach this. If you go to Walmart or Target, look at what falls under the Christian section. There are Christian, supposedly Christian books that teach you this, that you are enough. This comes from this philosophy, existentialism. So here are these proponents, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. They were at the heart of this movement in France in the 1920s. Beauvoir was a prominent feminist and author, and Sartre and Beauvoir, they met in school, and they entered into this really strange relationship. They were romantically attracted to each other, but they made an agreement. They said, we're never going to marry each other. Because the institution of marriage was outdated and they said this, that they wanted to prove that you can live a life of radical transparency and you can be live a fulfilled life without marriage, without commitments. They promised to tell each other everything, including all their sexual encounters, and this would turn out to be a huge part of their life story. And their relationship was well known to uh, those that were around this movement. And people took great joy in the fact that here was a couple that could live in absolute freedom. Sartre said repeatedly over the years that he was devoted to radical transparency. Everyone would know what I'm up to and they would see that because I've created meaning for myself, that this is the way to live. But his life told another story. He, he lied constantly in order to seduce women and there were many in his lifetime. His letters, at Beauvoir and Sartre, they maintained this ongoing correspondence for the, the entirety of their life. The, the letters to 
Beauvoir, they don't hide the fact that he lied to all these women in order to get his way with them. Beauvoir herself, she had a long string of lovers, both male and female, and she shared all her exploits with Sartre. And like Sartre, she had plenty of negative things to say about these lovers. She shared them with Sartre and no one else. When Sartre died, his letters to Beauvoir were were edited and they were published. And people read these letters and they were in awe of his life. They said, wow, it really worked. Existentialism, this idea of creating meaning for yourself, it really works. And here is an example in this philosopher. Shortly after Beauvoir died, her letters were published, unedited. And for the first time, the public saw how much of a discrepancy there was between the image they presented to the public and what they really felt and experienced. For decades, they had this long series of trysts with other people. They even shared some sexual partners. Beauvoir, she was consumed with an intense jealousy. She often begged Sartre to lie about his whereabouts to his mistresses so that she could spend more time with him alone. Sartre was consumed with uh, this selfish, fulfilling all his desires. And they told each other in their letters, don't feel guilt about this. And they kept, they were able to keep up this charade for their entire lives. 50,000 people attended Sartre's funeral when he died. This is how much he was admired. But in the end, it was their own letters that revealed their own selfishness and shame and jealousy and disregard for other people. They never found peace with the situation that they were in or with each other. They spent decades chasing after what they could not attain. And they tried to create meaning for their own lives apart from any objective standard. But in the end, at the end of their life, they never got what they wanted. And what is this? This is a soul thirst. Their inner person was parched. Their thirst drove them to something deeper, drove them deeper into something that, they could, that could never give them the satisfaction that they were so desperate for. And in this way, their thirst was a curse. Albert Camus, he was also a prominent philosopher in France at the same time as Sartre and Beauvoir. And this is what he said when he looked back on his own life. Because I longed for eternal life, I went to beds with, bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. In the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the mortal state. So our own stories may not be as dramatic. But we too have a thirst that we've been trying to slake our entire lives. Our thirst is a curse to us when it causes us to seek pleasure and life and satisfaction in ourselves and in what we can accomplish and what we can control. But we don't have to do that. We can't do that. We can't create meaning or satisfaction for ourselves. We'll always have a thirst and there's only one source that will slake that thirst. And the Bible contains such wisdom. It knows our hearts. It knows our natures. The Bible knows that there is something in us that cannot be quenched if we were in control of things. Listen to the words of David from Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. 
earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. David knows that there is a thirst that we feel in our souls that can be satisfied only by God. Our souls, whether we know it or not, whether we say we believe in God or not, are thirsty. We're desperately thirsty for God. And on the cross, Jesus knows this. He will go thirsty in order for us to be satisfied by God. As David cries out in Psalm 63. So here Jesus is. He is hanging on the cross. He's been tortured for hours. He's hanging on the cross in utter exhaustion and agony. He's been mocked. He's been shamed. His body is in shock. Those who have experienced true thirst, those who have gone without water for days on end, they'll tell you that thirst, it's not just an uncomfortable feeling in the back of their throats. It's a burning inside their bodies. Their insides are burning up. This is true thirst. And this is what Jesus is feeling. So here in our passage, Jesus says, I thirst. The Greek for the phrase, I thirst, is one word. Dipso. Dipso. And you can imagine Jesus with a very hoarse voice through dry, cracked lips saying, Dipso. I thirst. Galatians tells us that Jesus was cursed when he hung on that tree. Jesus was cursed on that cross. And here Jesus is cursed by this thirst. In Matthew's account of the crucifixion, we're given another detail about Jesus' final moments. John tells us that this wine was placed on his mouth. But before the wine was placed on his mouth, from Matthew's account of the crucifixion, Jesus cries out, you might remember it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus experiences a physical thirst, but far more agonizing is the experience of an unfulfilled yearning and longing for God. Jesus experiences in the most profound way a deep, deep spiritual thirst. Have you ever felt an intense yearning for something or someone? This is what Jesus felt times 10 million. The relationship between the Father and the Son, which was unbroken from all eternity past, was in this moment on the cross, it was broken. Jesus is crying out, God, where are you? But there is no answer to his question. There is no relief for Jesus. There is no answer to his cry to the Father. There could not be any deeper thirst. 
than this. And do you know what this is? This is the same burning and thirst that we should have experienced. All the things that we thirst for are are mere echoes and shadows of what we really want, which is God himself, Psalm 63. And as much as it pains us now to live with these unfulfilled desires, to be separated from God, God is far, far worse. Consider this. Our unfulfilled desires are meant to force us to look at the desire underneath that desire. Why do we want that lifestyle? Why do we want that person? Why do we want that career? Why do we want our kids to be a certain way? Why do we want a certain number in our bank accounts? What is the desire underneath that desire? To receive all that we desire in this life, to be happy with everything that we have, this is the true curse. Because if we got everything that we ever wanted, the desire for the ultimate and the transcendent, namely God, this would never, this desire would never be stirred. If we were satisfied with what we have, if you are unsatisfied with your lot in life, if you're not happy with the way things are, you can thank God for that. You can thank God for your unhappiness and your loneliness and your pain because it's pointing you to something far deeper and greater and richer than all the things you try to fill that with. Do you thirst for something right now? Does it feel like you'll shrivel up and die if you don't get it? Thank God for that, because now you understand on a very, very small level what life is like without God. On the cross, Jesus thirsted and he was denied the only true source of life and joy. Jesus experienced all the thirst and agony that we should have experienced. And this brings us to our final points. The quenching of thirst. Our passage contains a small detail that helps us see what's really going on here. This is what I love about the Gospel of John. There's all these little things that if you poke into them, a stream of truth comes out. Verse 29, a sponge soaked with sour wine was placed on a hyssop branch and it was placed on Jesus' mouth. Hyssop was a bush that the Israelite priest used to sprinkle blood on the altar when they did the atoning sacrifices in the temple you might remember david's words from psalm 51 he says purge me with hyssop purge me with hyssop and i shall be clean hyssop was the plant that was used to dab blood on the doorposts of god's people when they were enslaved in egypt and this is what passover is celebrating it's celebrating that the angel of death passed over their house when The angel saw the blood on the doorposts. And if you're paying attention to this crucifixion narrative, you may remember that this crucifixion takes place during the Passover festivities. And this detail about the hyssop branch is to signal to us that there is the real Passover happening here on the cross. 
except now this hyssop branch is not being used to sprinkle blood. Now the blood of Jesus is falling on the hyssop branch. The sins of the people are being atoned for by the blood of the Lamb of God who is bleeding out his life. On the cross, Jesus was a sacrifice that allowed us to live. He experienced thirst so that we would not have to. And the work of Jesus on the cross means that our thirst for the ultimate source of joy and goodness and beauty and life can be quenched. And the gospel is this, that we've all tried to find these things apart from God. Our lives are marked by a continual thirst. And like the people in the book of Jeremiah, we've tried and we've tried and we've tried and we've failed to quench that thirst. Listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. But in his love, God has given us a vessel full of living, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching, never-ending water in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the vessel of living water that was drained of every last drop. He was parched on the cross so that we could have it all. And if we'll turn away from all the things that only make us more thirsty, this is what the Bible calls repentance. We can take a hold of that living water. We can know God You may have heard it said that you should believe on Christ to escape death. You should trust in Christ to escape the torments of hell. Death and hell are real. But the ultimate purpose of the cross was not for us to escape those things. It's for us to know God. Because nothing is as terrible as separation from God. And nothing is better than to know God through Jesus Christ. Our passage ends with these words, it is finished. It is finished. The Greek word for this phrase is tetelestai. Tetelestai. The root word of tetelestai is telos, which means ending or completion. Telos was was written on a bill after it was paid in full. It meant that nothing else was owed And tetelestai is written in the perfect tense. And for grammarians, this means that something something has been completed in the past, but it has ongoing effects. And tetelestai means that the completed work of Christ has far-reaching implications into the future. When Jesus experienced the thirst on the cross, it was then that he knew that his work was done. The work of Jesus is done. He came to earth to speak truth to us. He came to rescue us and to pay our ransom. He came to do the work of the Father. He came to fulfill the many Old Testament prophecies. All these things he did. And in this moment, he can say, it's finally done. There's nothing else that needs to be done.
And for those of us who feel like we continually need to try to prove our worth to God, who feel like we need to make promises to God that we can't keep, for those of us who are tired and wondering if God will accept us, Tetelestai is really good news for you. Because if you are in Christ, you never have to wonder if you're accepted. Because a father accepted the finished and forever done work and sacrifice of Jesus. So what are we to do? We're to approach Jesus and drink. If you want to live a life that honors Jesus, then go to him for your drink. Come to Jesus with your nothing. Come to Jesus with your desperation. Stop looking elsewhere to quench your thirst. Read his word. Meditate on what he says to you through it. Go to him in prayer. Confess your sin, your weakness, your neediness. Spend time with others who also drink from Jesus. This is what we're doing at this park. This is what we're doing online as we gather. Tell others how they can have what you have. The work is done and the way to honor Jesus It's to say, I have nothing. Give me everything that you are. The work of Jesus is done. Drink from him. Will you pray with me? Father, we um, are in awe that we have this deep, eternal thirst that can only be be fulfilled by the deep and living and true eternal God. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to that truth. I pray that this would cause us to reach out to you, to find in Jesus this soul-satisfying drink, God. I pray that we would be thirsty for the right things. And I pray that this would be something that draws us closer to you, that brings us closer to you, God. So um, we ask for more of you. We ask for more of you. This is how we honor you, not by declaring our promises but by declaring our neediness, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our water. Amen.